John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to his Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. So Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to be washed to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and sat down, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most surely I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent them. If you know these things, blessed are you, notice, if you do them. Father, we thank you so much for your unchanging word. And I pray, Lord, tonight you would give us ears to hear. Lord, before we end our service by coming to the table of communion, Lord, we want to see you. We want to see who you are and what you ministered to disciples of old so many a thousand years ago. Lord, we want to be your disciples tonight. We want to hear your voice tonight. We want to be your disciples. So speak to us, we pray. May you be our teacher. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. As you well know, unless you're visiting tonight, we are doing a series here on Wednesday nights called Being Discipled by Jesus. Well, we're looking at those passages of Scripture where Jesus pulled aside, not the multitudes, not, not, not the, the Pharisees to rebuke them, but he pulled aside his disciples. These men who wanted to change the world, to change their generation. And the reason we're doing this is, I mean, of all the groups that have ever lived on earth, it's only the disciples I'm kind of jealous of. They actually got to walk with Jesus, talk with Jesus, have Jesus pour into them. I mean, I've been poured into by many great men of God. But to be discipled by Jesus, that would be awesome, wouldn't it? Well, friends, we have that opportunity. Oh, you know, we can't go back in time and walk with him. But his teachings have been written down for us. The lessons he taught there in Scripture. So we too can be discipled by Jesus. And we began this series by looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus pulled his disciples aside. There were more than 12 at that time. And he taught them kingdom principles and kingdom attitudes that he said aren't to be lived just in some Christian commune. You know, there's a lot of talk today. How do we reach our community? How do we reach the, the place that we live, our neighborhoods? Jesus told us, we're to be salt and light. 
Nothing wrong with outreaches, nothing wrong with, you know, crusades. But you and I were to be salt and light in the community and the culture in which God has placed us. He told his disciples, this is the narrow road, get on it and be my disciple. Then we switch gears from the Sermon on the Mount, which happened early on in Jesus' ministry, to kind of the middle of his ministry. We looked at Matthew 10, where Jesus took those multitude of disciples and he picked 12 who would become apostles. And from Matthew 10 on, that's the audience that we are addressing as we go through the series. Those 12 men you think of as disciples or apostles. And Jesus sent them out on their first missionary journey there in Matthew 10. Last week, we looked at Matthew 16, still in the middle of Jesus' ministry, where he took them up to Caesarea Philippi and showed them that there is a cost to discipleship. That sometimes, in fact, most times, discipleship will cost you. And Jesus exhorted his disciples, take up your cross, deny yourself, and follow me. Well, tonight, we move from the middle of Jesus' ministry, there in Matthew 10, Matthew 16, to the very end of Jesus' ministry, the night before he would pay for my sins and yours. And there's so much that Jesus shared with his disciples in those few hours from the Passover to his betrayal in the garden to when he was on the cross. So much information was given because everyone knows that what someone shares in their last moments, if they know it's going to be their last moments, it's usually important stuff. I mean, if you're on your deathbed and someone you love comes in, you're probably not going to say, hey, how's the weather for the next 10 days? That's probably not what you're going to talk about. You're going to talk about important, eternal things. And I believe Jesus does this in this upper room discourse that he gives. It's not just me that thinks that these passages of Scripture here in John 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 are important. Listen to the, 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 the writings. They'll be up on the screen from Alexander McLaren. Nowhere do these blended lights of our Lord's superhuman dignity and human tenderness shine with such lambent brightness. Nowhere else in His speech, at once so simple and so deep, nowhere else have we the heart of God so unveiled to us. On no other page, even of the Bible, have so many eyes glistened with tears, looked and had those tears dried. The immortal words which Christ spoke in those upper chamber are His highest self-revelation in speech. Alexander McLaren. In this upper room discourse, Jesus is going to give to those that were there, these 12 apostles and angels, that's the only audience, but He's going to give to them six keys to life and ministry. Such important stuff. So over the next six hours, we're, no, we weren't going to do that. Over the next six weeks, I want you to like me and come back next week. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at these and see these important things that Jesus shared with his disciples. But before we get to that tonight, I just want to take a minute and explain the mindset of Jesus at this moment in his life. Because we're told there in verses 1 and 2, look again, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from the world to his father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We have an insight in Jesus' mind in that first verse of chapter 13. There are really two things on Jesus' mind. We read there that he knew his hour had come. He understood that he was going to heaven. He was faced with the very real fact that he wasn't going to spend forever on planet earth. He knew the reason he was born was to die. He was not disillusioned that he was going to live forever like so often mankind is today. You know, when we're young, we think we're never going to face death. And that attitude doesn't end with youth. 
You know, just the other night, watching some sports program, and in between a commercial and an infomercial comes on, and for $9.99 plus shipping and handling, you can own the latest and greatest, you know, set of the Rolling Stones, you know, greatest hits. And, and, they're, and they're singing, there is Mick Jagger, time is on my side. And I thought about that. That guy? That guy? That guy? That guy? That guy? That guy? That guy thinks time is on his side? Look at him. Maybe back in the late 60s, but no more. Time is not on that bro's side anymore. But there he is, still singing, I'm going to live forever. No, no, no. And it's not just true for Mick Jagger. The reality is, time isn't on any of our sides. David says in Psalm 39, certainly every man at his best state is but a vapor. We're a vapor. James reiterates this in his book when he says in James chapter 4, For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes away. Friends, the reality from the Word of God is clear. You are not going to live forever. This life is short. What are you doing with it? Jesus knew that. He knew his hour had come. And secondly, he knew where he was going. Jesus knew full well he was headed for heaven. That this world was not his home. He was living for another. And because he knew that, it affected him. You see, you'll see this. I, I, I've, as many of you have been on many missions trips. And taking high school kids, college kids, you know, on, on the mission field, you, you notice something. That as you walk around these foreign countries, especially the third world countries, you look at the, the contrast between the face of the Americans on the trip. And the people who live in those countries, the people that live in those countries so often, they're, they're kind of downcast. They're, they're, they look like they're sad and kind of depressed. And, and certainly that's because they don't know Christ, if they don't. But then you look at our faces, and they're smiling, laughing, joking. You know why that is, I think? Because the Americans on the trip realize something. That in a few days, a week or so, I'm getting on a plane, and I'm going back to the U.S. of A. We're walking the same streets with the same smells, with the same people, but we realize this is not my home. You take a van down to Mexico to do some ministry. It's like hey, you realize in a few hours I'm getting on that van and coming home. And so it just changes your, how, your whole outlook, your whole countenance. A couple weeks ago, I, I, I was in Costa Rica. And, and so you don't think it was like a pleasure cruise. I mean, the reality was I originally was going to go with my wife and she couldn't make it. I was going to go with Danny and he, he had to drop out. And so I was going alone. I said, hey, Phil, I just want to stay with you. I don't want to go to a hotel. I just want to hang out with you. He's like, well, we don't room. I've got this thing like next door to me and it'll be great. So I, I show up there and it's this little cabana he has next to his house. And Corey, who you guys know that we just sent down there, he's in one of them. And another one was empty. And I walk in this little one room and I turn the light and 20 cockroaches just go into the wall. And they're huge. I mean, they're like hand size. Costa Rica is the only place I know on earth that's hotter, more humid, and the bugs are bigger than Texas. But it is. Costa Rica is definitely that way. And so I'm there, and I'm like, hey, you know, and then the power kept going out every night, and the little fan would shut down, and, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the Ritz. But I was fine. And then I said to Corey, who's down there for six months, how you doing, bud? I'm getting used to it. And it was different. You know what the difference was? I was leaving in three days. That was it. He's there for six months. And so I'm like, eh, bugs, it's all right. He's like, those are my roommates for six months. It affects, it affects our outlook. And friends, I share that with you because that is how all of us should view heaven. This world isn't your home. I know this world stinks at times. It does. There's trials. 
There's trials, there's struggles, but they're not just trials, there's trappings. There's things that can compete for your heart and your mind and your attention and your priorities. Like Jesus, we need to realize this world isn't my home. I know where I'm going. I know my life isn't forever because it affected what Jesus did. He knew his time had come. He knew he was going to heaven. So he got up from the table. He laid aside his garments and he began to wash the disciples' feet. And as he did it, he taught them the first lesson. And that is that greatness is service. Greatness is service. Look at verse 2 with me. After supper being ended, the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself, and after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Jesus began to wash the disciples' feet. Foot washing in Jesus' day was the lowest job possible. The lowest job. You've got to get out of your mind the American foot washing service. Now, I know we, I don't know if we've ever done that at Calvary Vista. Have we ever done that here at Calvary Vista? We've never done it at Calvary Paris either. And here's why. It's not because it's not a good thing to do. We've done it with leadership. But here's the difference. If we announced Sunday we're having a foot washing service, now, we're not. Don't put that on Facebook. We want people here on Sunday. We're not. But if I announced that, foot washing on Sunday, here's what would happen. Half of you wouldn't show up. That would just be it. Like, not that Sunday. The other half would get up. Well, the other fourth would get a pedicure. I hope for. Anyways, little pedicure. So your feet, girls, would be looking so good. You guys would actually bathe that day before you came to church and cut those things you call toenails, you know, and deal with the claws. You would do that so then when we would come to wash your feet and we'd take your sock off, it'd just be, it'd smell good and fresh. And it just, it's just awkward. And then, and then the reason we don't do that is either if I announced it, it wouldn't be right, and if we just popped it on you, we're like, surprise, here come the men with the buckets. Oh, you'd be so angry at us. So angry. So that's why we don't do that. But the reason you've got to see the difference is that's what Amer- American foot washing is. It's like, oh, wash my feet. They're so clean and nice. In the disciples' day, remember, they're walking everywhere. So when they would go from place to place, their feet would be nasty and dirty. And if they'd come into a house to wash their feet, that was a, a job even Hebrew slaves couldn't have been made to do. Just the Gentiles. It certainly wasn't the job of a kingdom leader. Or was it? You see, in Luke's account, Luke tells us that this night, it started with them arguing about who's the greatest, the disciples. They're actually arguing. The night before Jesus is betrayed, the night he was betrayed, the night before he died, they're saying, oh, I'm the greatest. No, I'm the greatest. And I wonder if the reason they're arguing is because they knew. Hey, there's no Gentiles present at this meeting, so therefore the Mishnah says that the lowest of the Hebrews that are present were not obligated, but we should wash the feet. So guess what? That's not me, Peter probably said. Not me. I'm not the least. I ain't washing your dirty, stinky feet, John. And John's like, my feet? You're nasty, Peter. And and they begin to argue about who is the greatest. And Jesus, hearing this, realized it was time to teach the disciples another lesson. You can picture the scene that they're just partaking of the Passover meal. The Jewish table was different. It wasn't a a table off the ground that you'd push chairs into. It was low to the ground and you'd lay down on your left side. And you'd eat with your right hand. You actually get to lay down while you eat. I love Jewish tables. You could doze off. It's like a Sunday afternoon meal. Awesome. 
So they were there and they were, and they were, they were just eating. And behind you would be your dirty, nasty feet sticking out. And Jesus gets up, gets up, girds himself with a towel. And he begins to wash these feet. No doubt they would have heard the water being poured. The king of kings, his breath breathing as he walks in and begins to wash their feet. So humble. Such a servant. And friends, I hope you realize this, that in doing this, there's a lot that Jesus was doing. He was illustrating what had already, it already happened. In John 13, it says, Jesus got up from the feast. He left that place of fellowship, just like he did when he left heaven. He left heaven where he sits there and angels just worship him 24 hours a day. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And he left that perfect fellowship of Father, Son, Holy Spirit to come down and hang out with you and me. In John 13, it says he girded himself with a towel, a picture of a slave. Just when he came to earth, he took on our sinful flesh with all of its setbacks, with all of its issues. In John 13, Jesus washed the disciples' feet and Jesus, in coming to earth, washed our sins away by paying our price on a cross. It was a picture this night of the incarnation. And we need to see it because as Paul says in Philippians, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus was illustrating what he had done, but listen, in that, he was encouraging you and I, just like Paul here in Ephesians, Philippians, wherever he is, to do the same exact things. This is Jesus. He's not about living for himself. He's not being about easy street. He's willing to take steps down and be a servant. And if you and I are going to be a disciple, if we're going to follow God, friends, guess what that means? We need to be servants too. Jesus said in Mark 9, If anyone desires to be first, let him be last and a servant of all. In this world, if you want to be great, well, then the goal is to become more powerful than those around you. The goal is to make more money, to control people. The, that, that idea dominates our American society. And you know what? It dominated Jesus' society too. But Jesus told his disciples, I want to tell you a secret. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you've got to learn from me, boys. You've got to learn that greatness, true, spiritual, eternal greatness is found in service. Jesus was saying, you've got to like, be like me, who it said of him in Mark 10, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, friends, the world has seen enough of pretentious Christianity. Those that walk around, well, I'm better than you. You're not of my socioeconomic status, so I can't hang out with you. They've seen enough of that. What blows them away, what blows the world away, is when they see genuine love. We're, we're doing this cool thing at Calvary Paris right now. Last, last Saturday, we had a free car wash. It wasn't like a ploy to like then take donations for the youth ministry. It was just free. We'd been advertising it, signs out, and watching people drive in was just, it was a trip. And they pull up, and they're like, all right, so, so where's the bucket? And we're like, no bucket. No, no, come on, come on. I know, I know, I know this is, this is you know, raising money for some trip to Guatemala or something. No, 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 listen. Jesus died for you. That was free. We just want to illustrate that any way we can. People were losing their minds. People were like, what? Because you see, the world's used to churches all about getting some money, 
The world's used to churches that want to be the greatest and the biggest and have more people. When you and I as Christians just decide to love people for no ulterior motives, just to be like our Lord and Savior, just to serve them, friends, it blows their mind. It blows their mind, but my, my, my point is, it shouldn't. That's what Christians should be like. That's what we should be known for. Because that's what Jesus was known for. Well, the plot thickens. Look at verse 6. Oh, Jesus is washing feet. Verse 6. Oh, Pete. Oh, Peter shows up. Peter said to him. No, verse 6. Then he came to Simon Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I'm doing, you do not understand now, but you will after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said, if I don't wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. But is completely clean and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. So when he washed their feet and taken his garment and sat down, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord and you say, well, for I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Peter's watching this whole deal. And I just imagine that Peter thought he was about to get another A. Here's what I mean. You remember the story from last week, right? Or two, I think last week. Where, where Jesus brings the disciples to Caesarea Philippi. He says, who do men say that I am? And they're like, ah, oh, you're John the Baptist. Ah, oh, you're Elijah. You're Jeremiah. And what does Peter say? He's like, nope, 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 nope. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, oh, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, Peter. You didn't hear that on the street. You heard that from God in heaven. It must have been cool to be Peter in that moment. From God in heaven, huh? I get direct revelation. All right. I'm not like those 11 chumps over there. I hear from God. And I just picture Peter doing the same thing. Watching him wash John's feet. Watching him wash Judas's feet, Thomas's feet. And Peter's like, these lamos. Don't they know this is a lesson? Don't they know that what he wants them to learn is, what are you doing? You're the master. We're supposed to serve you. And so when Jesus comes to him, he says, not me, Lord, not me. You're not going to wash my feet. No way. But Jesus, again, has to subtly rebuke Peter. No, no listen, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you're not going to have part of me. Now, now, listen, don't misunderstand what he's saying. It's very important because, again, as I said before, Jesus is trying to teach, I believe, a lot of things in this foot-washing moment. He's trying to teach them to be, dis, you know, to be servants, to be disciples. But he's also teaching them something about being in communion with him. He, he says there, the word wash in verses 5, 6, 8, and 12 for you Bible students, it's the Greek word nipto, and it means to wash a part of the body, like to wash your feet. When Jesus uses the words washed in verse 10, it's luau, and it means to bathe all over. And the distinction is important, because Jesus isn't just teaching about being a servant, he's teaching about the importance of a holy walk. You see, as we go through life, parts of us get dirty. 
They just do. Just like the disciples, they would walk from Nazareth to, you know, to Jerusalem. Their feet would get dirty. And, and that part of them that would come in contact with the world would need to be washed. Well, so too with you and I. We're washed, we're cleansed, we're saved by grace, but part of us gets dirty. I mean, you're just watching football on a Sunday afternoon and a commercial comes on or it pans to the sideline. It's like, ah, what is that? And now all of a sudden there's this stain in your mind. It becomes dirty. Well, Jesus is saying to Peter in verse 8, he says, if I don't wash your feet, you won't have part with me. And the word part there is miros. It carries the idea of participation or having have a share in something. You see, listen very carefully. When God bathes us all over in salvation, when He bathes us all over in that act of salvation, He brings union with Christ and us, and that's settled. But our communion with Christ is dependent on us keeping ourselves unspotted from the world. Did you hear me on that? When Jesus saves us, we're bathed, we're washed, the union is complete. But sometimes because we get stained by the world, our communion is cut off. That intimacy is cut off. And that part of us that interacts with the world, it needs to continually be washed. How do we do that? Well, I think it's beautifully illustrated for us in the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, it, it talks about the priest and them being ordained for ministry. And these priests would go to this elaborate ceremony at their ordination. And they were bathed, they were washed. And it was once in their lifetime, it was done deal. But as they would go through life, they're sinners just like you and me. And, and they would do wrong things. And so every day before they could minister, they'd have to go to the brass labor and wash in the water to be ready for ministry. And Paul the Apostle links this picture of water in the scriptures with this book right here, the Word. When he says in Ephesians 5, to you husbands, me too, we're to wash our wives in the water of the word. There is a washing that takes place right here. You see, how do I cleanse that part of me, whether it's my mind or my heart, that comes in contact with the world? I need to continually be in the word. It's why myself, Pastor Rob, anyone that teaches from this state, listen, we keep encouraging you, stay in the Bible. Stay in the word daily. And I'm the first to readily admit, sometimes, sometimes you come to a passage that just isn't fun to read. You know, we all, we, yeah, read through the Bible in a year, yay! And we read Genesis, and that's fun. Genesis is fun. Exodus starts out fun. But then it starts talking about ordination of priests and building the tabernacle with this many cubits. And like, I don't even know what a cubit is. What? And you think, oh, I'll skip that. I'll get to Leviticus. That'll be better. Uh-uh. And you're learning about how to slay a goat. And you're like, what? Why do I need to know how to slay a goat? And, and sometimes I get asked genuinely, why, why is that important? Well, friends, I believe personally something supernatural happens is I let the Word of God cleanse my heart and my mind. Whether I'm reading John 13, which is easy to get stuff out of John 13, or whether I'm reading Leviticus 13, which is a little harder, Something supernatural is happening where the filth of the world is being washed and rinsed out of my life. Same thing when we come here. We come here on Wednesday nights or Sunday nights or Sunday mornings or Saturday nights and the Word of God is brought forth. There's a cleansing that takes place in our hearts and in our lives and we need that precious men and women. 
We need that, that the communion between us and the Lord would just continue. Man, when, when, when we, we accepted what He did on the cross, we were washed, we were bathed all over, but that part of us that connects with the world, it needs to continually be cleansed. So Jesus in washing feet, He was showing us this importance for that which comes in contact with the world to be washed, but He was also illustrating us that we need to be servants as well. Jesus washed feet, we need to wash feet. The story is told of Samuel Logan Bringle, who, is a, who was a Methodist minister, and he was pastoring the States, and he left the States to join William Booth's Salvation Army in England. And upon arrival, William Booth didn't, almost didn't accept Samuel Bringle, his request to serve. And he said, the reason I'm not accepting you is that you've been your own boss too long. Other people have been serving you for too long, and that's not what real ministry is all about. So in order to deal with this perceived lack of wanting to serve, William Booth said, here's what we're going to do, Samuel. Your one job, your one job is to blacken the boots of the men that are going to go out and share the gospel. And think that through with me. Here's, here's the pastor of a huge church in America, leaves that church to go serve somewhere else, and his job is to, to blacken boots. And he started writing his journal. Did I make a mistake? Did I not hear from the Lord? Was I just kind of following my own heart? I crossed the Atlantic. I gave up everything. Is this really what you want me to do? And God confirmed through the word. And he wrote in his journal this. He said, Lord, you wash their feet. I will blacken their boots. And Samuel Bringle not only went on to be very effective serving under William Booth, but Samuel Bringle would eventually be the man that would take over the ministry and bring it into its highest place of prominence. You see... The Bible exhorts us not to despise the day of small things, to be faithful, to be a servant. And in doing so, hear me on this, not only are you preparing for elevation, for God to promote from the Lord, but probably more important to most of us tonight, notice it will also bring you joy. Being a servant will bring you joy. We're almost done, but look at verse 17. Jesus tells his disciples, so key, Happy are you what? If you... Oh, come on. Audience participation. We can do it. Happy are you if you... Do them. That's right. Do them. Oh, friends, the order is so important. We're humble. We're holy. Then we're happy. We try it every other way. We need to hear what God is saying. We think, if I get other people to serve me, that'll make me happy. That's not what God's saying. We think if I just, you know, let my flesh get pleased a little bit, I live carnally, that'll make me happy. That's not what God is saying. God is saying, be a servant, take up a towel, let those parts of you that come in contact with the world be cleansed, be holy, and then guess what? Then you will be happy. Happy will you be if you do them. We're such selfish creatures. We want people to serve us, to care for our needs. But if you've gone through seasons of that in your life, you know it can be miserable. In serving others, there is great joy. Notice, not in learning about serving others. It didn't say learning about its great joy. Oh, good, I was wondering what was wrong with your sermon tonight. I wasn't having great joy. Well, I don't know. Not in learning about it is great joy. Great joy comes from doing it, friends. So guess what, precious men and women? You, me, all of us, you need to find someone to serve. You need to find someone to serve. Uh, who, who should I serve? Oh, I'll make it real easy for you. Hey, husbands, husbands, you need to serve your wife. You need to serve your wife. 
What? You to wash your feet. She doesn't want me to wash her feet. Well, then wash the dishes. How about that? Take a towel and wash the stinking dishes. Now, you say her amen. So, ladies, let's move on to you. I heard that amen. Ladies, ladies, who are you to serve? Your husbands. Oh. Mm. Let's go back to talking about the dishes. No, listen, listen. Well, he's got an attitude. Hello, the disciples? The disciples moments before this, like, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest, no, I'm the greatest. And Jesus, I mean, if I was him, I'd be like, oh, boy, day, I'm out of here. But Jesus, with the attitude people, takes a towel, gets down and starts to serve. Serve your kids. My kids? That's not how the totem pole works. Again, that's not what Jesus illustrated for us. He was God. He was, he's God. He took a towel and began to serve. Serve those that have an attitude towards you. Serve them. You see, washing people's feet means you have to get dirty. It's not ministry from afar. You have to be willing to get involved. It's work, but it's worth it because you will affect people's lives. I'm so thankful for a lady named Mrs. Welchel in my life. Who was that? Some elderly lady that when I was a kid volunteered saying, I'm going to serve kids in children's ministry. I remember it like it was, she had a flannel graph. You that are older, remember the flannel graphs? These kids today, like my son's like, look, it's my digital slide. I'm like, what? When we were kids, it was like, look at the donkey. <laughs> it was this flannel graph. That was it. But I remember seeing that donkey and just moving and she'd share and, and she'd minister. And I don't always remember the story, but I tell you what. I remember her eyes. And I wasn't even saved as a kid. But I knew that Jesus loved me. Because you know why? That girl loved me. That, old, that, that elderly lady loved me. On the weekend, there are hundreds of kids on the other side of that wall. Hundreds of kids. Maybe you need to find one of them to serve. Well, I'm not a teacher. I'm not, I don't know what to do. Can you share with them that Jesus loves them? Can you be his hands and his feet in their lives? I'm so thankful for Mrs. Welchel. I'm so thankful for a guy named Gordon Hall in my life. Gordon Hall was a volunteer in my high school group. He wasn't the youth pastor, never got a check from the church. But he showed up Sunday and Wednesday, Sunday and Wednesday, and he would pull me aside, he'd take me out to lunch, and you know what he'd say to me? He'd say, God has more for you than just golf in your life. I'd be like, <laughs> No, God has more than that for you. And he'd stay on me, and he'd stay on me, and he'd stay on me. I think I'm here tonight. Because some guy just said, I'm going to find some quirky little high school kid to serve. I'm going to take him out to lunch. I'm going to encourage him that God has big things for his life. Maybe, 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 maybe you would find a high school kid or a junior high kid to come alongside them and serve. Right now in Calvary, Paris, there's this young man and oh, he's been through so much in his life, so much. He was in a tragic car accident years ago where he was driving and someone died and it just tough things ever since then and just one trial after another and he just got married, just got married, got his life together, just got married. He called me about a month ago and he said, my wife's cheating on me with her boss. And I told... I told her I loved her and I wanted her back. 
She said, I don't want you back. He's like, I don't know what to do. I might end it all. And I wept with this kid and I prayed with this kid. It didn't matter what I said. It was like, I, didn't, I was so worried for him. A couple days ago, I called him again. I called him in between then, but a couple of days ago, I called him again. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm doing so good. So good. I said, why? What happened? Something I said on the phone? Nah, not you. I love it. He named this guy in the church. This guy's been faithful in our church just for years. He shows up. Just not on staff. Not on a worship team. Not a Bible teacher. Older guy. This guy's young. He said, this guy, he's been taking me out to dinner and telling me God's not done with my life and I believe him and I'm going to serve the Lord. And I hung up the phone and I said, that's the body of Christ. That's what it is. The body of Christ is not about a man on stage. Though I'm so thankful that you show up and I get to be on stage. I'm so thankful for Pastor Rob and him teaching us. That's not what the body of Christ isn't the man on stage. It's you. The body of Christ is a living organism. And it's when we get together and say, God, what role do you want me to play? I know I've said this before, but I encourage you. Hey, we can so often look at the church that God has placed us in and say, I don't like that. I don't like that. I don't like that. So I'm going to complain to Pastor Rob. I'm going to complain to Pastor Steve. i got a way better idea. Why don't you say, God, if you've made me part of this church, how can I be part of the solution? If you think we're lacking in a certain area, get on your knees and say, God, how can I be part of that? Can I volunteer in that area and see those gaps filled? Can I just pray that someone would fill those gaps? Lord, do you, what do you want me to do? Friends, I believe as a congregation, if we truly did that, not just a few did that, but if everyone said, I'm going to find somebody to serve, I'm going to find something to do for Jesus. Not because it makes him, makes me love, or him love me more. Not because it secures my place in heaven. You, you all know that's not true. But because Jesus did it. Jesus served. So I'm going to find something to do. I believe our church and our community would never be the same. It'd never be the same. Well, I think we do a good job of this. I think we can do better. I think we can do better to truly love one another and serve one another. We've heard enough sermons on it. Happy are you if you what? Do it. Do it. So your homework. There's homework now? Yeah. It won't take long. I really hope from the bottom of my heart that what you would do as families single individuals that you go home tonight tonight and just pray I, I don't you see what I don't I don't want to like please serve in a, no I don't want it to be because you're forced or pushed but I think you need to go home and say God what do you want me to do if it's just to take an hour a week to pray just is a horrible word to use when you say just pray maybe you would partner and intercede for ministries Maybe God would have you show up and love on a little kid, or love on a high school student or a junior high student. Or maybe God would have you fill in a gap that you see there's a gap here. But would you pray? Would you do that with me? Would you pray? God, what do you want me to do? Because Jesus, you were a servant. 
Nowhere was that illustrated greater than when Jesus was up on a cross. He served you and I by paying for our sin. So we're going to pray. Worship team's going to come back out. We're going to end tonight with a moment of communion. The elements are right up front, to my right, to my left. And as we go up, I just want to think of this great illustration. There's Jesus, who could have stayed in heaven, could have said, somebody else's problem, I was perfect, how come Jason couldn't be? But he served me, and he served you, by going to a cross. I think it's time for us to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? Father, I thank you so much for this congregation I love with all of my heart. And I pray tonight, Lord, for for myself, for the staff here, for the board guys that are here, for the men and women that call this church their home, Lord, all of us. Father, we would genuinely say, Lord, what, what, what part do you want me to play? So many in this room tonight are doing, they're active in your kingdom. Lord, I pray that they would really understand tonight that they're on the right track and to not grow weary in well-doing. But I pray for others. That God, we'd embrace what you're teaching these disciples, that greatness, true greatness is found in service. And we see that in you, Jesus, as you took off your robe and took a towel and began to wash the disciples' feet. And we see it even greater illustrated than that. When you went to the cross to serve me, to serve these precious men and women, by dying for our sins. Lord, as we remember that, as we come to the table of communion tonight, I pray, Lord, that we would be inspired to be about your business, to be active participants in the kingdom of God. Because as we started tonight, our life truly is a vapor. This world is not our home. And I pray for myself, I pray for the rest of this church, that we would truly live like we believe that is true. In Jesus' name, amen.